2: Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. You will have noticed this is already quite a niche podcast as it is, but this episode is even more so because uh, I'm joined by my friend Michael McMullen, who you might know as a commentator on the Championship League and he's been around snooker for years. And we're the same age and we grew up in the 1980s in the supposedly golden era of snooker. And we thought we would uh, just talk today about what it was like being kids watching the, the great boom years unfold before us on television. So... Can you remember your f- first introduction to snooker on television?
1: I remember vaguely, I think it was Rex Williams was playing Neil Foulds. No, well,
2: already we're back.
1: We are. <laughs> and I've no idea what the tournament was. I'm not even sure what channel it was on. And I knew nothing about how snooker worked. And I noticed, uh, I always remember Rex had a break of 55. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I should say, before we continue, Michael has... A world-class memory. Literally, he's in like the top 13 people in the world for memory or
1: something. So anyway, carry on. Yeah, it's probably all wrong, but anyway, <laughs> I, I remember it well. But um, I, I remember seeing that they started at nil-nil and then Rex got up to 55, and I noticed this word break appeared mm. above it. And I thought that's the number of points he has to score before they go off for a break. And <laughs> I noticed it kept getting higher. And I thought, the more balls he's potting... The longer he has to wait for his next break. But anyway, so from those... Don't give them
2: any ideas. People listening to this <laughs> might, might,
1: might, might introduce that. Could be a new format mm-hmm. for next season. You're listening, Barry. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that was a very unpromising start. I remember in early 1986 watching the Irish Masters, the World Championship, but only little bits of them. <laughs> I didn't even really know the rules then. Uh, the following season I remember watching a little bit of the BCE international final which our friend Neil Fulton again him again Um, he's featuring a lot in these early memories and I watched the UK a bit as well but really the first tournament I probably watched properly would have been the Benson and Hedges Masters in 1987 and as it turned out of course uh, coming from Northern Ireland both of the finalists Mm. were Northern Ireland players which I'm pretty sure has never happened in any other tournament so it was funny that would happen in the first one I ever really watched And you know, I'll tell you what different times it was Because it was on BBC back then Funny enough, they didn't used to show The final sessions of finals live They did for the World Championship But their other finals weren't live As you say, in the supposed boom years But that one went on so late That they ended up being live (laughs) For the last few frames of it And uh, it was also being shown on Super Channel At the time Which was... (laughs) Uh, I'm not even sure the channel exists I I did say this would be niche, in fairness (laughs) was it was, uh, it, was qu- it was quite a new thing at the time, um, but the presenter was Paul McDowell, mm. who those of us who grew up in either the u k or Ireland will remember used to present news round on the BBC and who bizarrely I ended up working with some years later uh, when we were both working in football, um, but it went on till ten past one in the morning. And I think I got it in my head after that all finals must go on this late. I think it was just the ones Dennis was involved in. <laughs> certainly, the, uh, the, they did in those days because he'd had a really late finish in the Grand Prix. Obviously, the World Championship in '85 we all know about. But uh, I mean, they were extraordinary days because you'd have you know the snooker on all afternoon. There'd be like an early evening program, kind of wrapping up the afternoon and starting the evening, and then the the nighttime highlights as well. And then at the weekend, it would dominate grandstand or Sunday grandstand or whatever. Um... So it was just a, an extraordinary time. I mean, you know, you talk about boom years. Personally, I think the 90s were a better time for snooker. Um, but it was a boom in the sense of just the profile the game had yeah. at that time, which has been nowhere near since.
2: I'm afraid. Well, well, but let's look at the TV landscape, because we're talking mid-80s. So there were, there were four television channels, there was BBC One, BBC Two... ITV and Channel 4, and they all showed snooker. So basically, if you were our sort of age then, so 8, 9, 10, you really had no choice. You were going to come across it. And, mm. and quite likely, you know, quite like it. It was, you know, it's sort of colourful and quite interesting. And as you say, you didn't necessarily know what the rules were at first, but you, you watched it and you, you got into it. I remember the first the first World Championship I really watched. I didn't watch the '85 one, although I feel like I've seen it. Mm-hmm. The amount of times we've seen the uh, the black go down since. But '86, I remember I, I put together a scrapbook uh, based on pictures I'd cut out, crudely cut out of the the, the newspapers, and had a page for each player. I didn't have one for Joe Johnson because I'd never heard of him, and you know mm-hmm. world were number sixteen. I thought, well, what's the point? Of course, he won it. You know, I'm not saying to hold that against Joe to this day because you know we were we were, were waiting to... for some tension in the Euros. Yeah, well, I, it I mean, it's not really his fault either. You right. know, but um, but it, it, it was high profile. It, you know, BBC One showed it sometimes at prime time and, and ITV as well. Um, which was then the most watched channel in the country? They 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 showed hours and hours of it, so it was very hard to escape,
1: wasn't it? Yeah, well, not only did they show hours and hours, but as you say, BBC One in prime time. The thing I always remember about ITV in those days, they used to show it after news at ten. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, which I mean nowadays that probably wouldn't mean as much to maybe younger people listening in or whatever. But back then, if you were on after news at ten, I mean that was you know that was when Minder was usually on yeah. or something. You know, that got a mm-hmm. massive audience like that. So that was the scale of it, and you know it wasn't just the coverage of that. You know, Wogan was sort of the big TV chat show then. I mean, hardly a week went by that Steve Davis or Alex Higgins or Jimmy or someone wasn't on that. Um, it would often be the front cover of the Radio Times, which again was such a big deal in those days when the World Championship was coming round. So it wasn't just that; it was you know everyone knew the players, even people who never watched snooker. Mm. They knew who the big names were. Uh, they knew the nicknames. Uh, of, you know, Alex Hurricane Higgins Jimmy Whirlwind-White, everybody knew about these things, and, you know, for people who weren't around in those days, it's impossible to, uh, to, to convey to them just how big the game was at that time, and the audiences it got yeah. you know, 16, 17, yeah. 18 million now, okay, you look at it now, around the world, there are a lot more people watching it, but we are talking I suppose about, you know, the, the days when, you know, it was very uh, British-centric, and... Um, you know the, the figures of got were just absolutely colossal well, at a lot, that
2: time yeah and a lot of the matches weren't necessarily that special I mean you look at the British Open Final 1985 Silvino Francisco Kirk Stevens not a classic okay you know Kirk was very popular that got like 15 million years yeah. and, and ITV because what was also different then was the live football thing, which now, of course, you, know, you turn on the TV, certainly at the weekend, and multi-channels, You know, there's live football from all around the world, you can't get away from it. But back then, there basically wasn't... You know, there was a, a couple of years went by, there was no live football at all. So that Sunday afternoon slot that traditionally now shows football... ITV would show their, their live finals they'd have a three session final so there'd be two sessions on the Saturday and it would finish on the Sunday afternoon and those finals got huge figures because of course there was nothing else on basically on any other channel and, and because Snook was so popular it, they, were, they were absolutely massive and they used to show
1: a highlights programme then on the Sunday <laughs> night as well yeah. You know, and very often in those days, particularly if you had someone like Cliff Thorburn or someone in the final, it might not have finished till about six or half past six, and then they'd be back on four hours later, you know, to, to catch highlights. I mean, you just, you know, you talk about how many tournaments there were on British television at that time. You think of it now, if something was that big, they'd probably make even more out of it, and there might be 10, 12 tournaments a season. It's funny, you know, I often think it's a bit like the X Factor, you know, uh, came along, absolutely massive, enormous viewing figures, press loved it. And then after a while, people started to knock it a bit, uh, and then the figures started to go down, and people maybe felt it was old hat. But you know what? The X Factor still gets enormous viewing figures. They do now, okay, yeah. It's a very, very different <laughs> thing to snooker. But you know, people have talked a lot about how snooker's audience has declined. Actually, it's held up pretty well. Hmm. You know, when you take into account how many uh, stations there are nowadays, and also the fact that there was that phenomenal period that you know you, you couldn't possibly have con- continued forever. It was on Channel 4, what used to happen
2: was when ITV went to the children's programming about 4 o'clock, it would go on to Channel 4, but then Michael Grade um, took over at Channel 4, from he came from the BBC, and he said, this was a direct quote, he said, I want Channel 4 to be a channel for people that hate snooker, which sounds quite insulting to snooker, but actually in a way it's a compliment, because what he's saying is the only way to define this channel as something different is not to have snooker on it, because there's mm-hmm. so much snooker on every other channel. Which, you know, is incredible, really. And um, I I guess, in a way, that was the beginning of the trouble for ITV because ITV, certainly more so then than now, it was a a sort of patchwork quilt of regional companies and and, and they all had to sort of come together for the network side of the TV. But, I mean, I remember snooker programmes where I lived in the central region and they would start mid-frame, because you, the, 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 the local version of ITV had come in late, so you didn't oh, see... Oh, I think they in every yeah. region, You yeah, didn't actually yeah. see, the, you had no idea what you were watching, other yeah. than it was just a snooker match. But yeah. let's talk about ITV, because I always thought they were, kind of, certainly in the 1980s, they were always sort of a little bit maverick compared to the BBC. The BBC, very professional, as you'd expect, sort of the national broadcaster. ITV, maybe because of the nature that, as I've just described, of the, their set-up, a little bit different.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed the mix. You know, I think there was a difference between the two and I didn't necessarily prefer one over the other. I liked the fact that you got several tournaments of each during the season. But, yeah, ITV, I suppose, did do it in a, in a slightly different sort of way. Um, you know, you, you see nowadays, you know, at, at the start of snooker coverage on any channel, generally, you know, they've got so these sort of features mm. and interviews with the players. It was really ITV who started that. BBC didn't used to do it. Now, they did take it too far sometimes because I remember the mercantile credit classic. Here we go. This, it, is, this is the stuff. <laughs> this is the stuff. This is the stuff we've come for. In 1992, <laughs> and Gary Wilkinson was playing James Wattana. I think it was the quarterfinals. may have only been the last 16 and Gary had just won the World Match Play a few weeks earlier. He'd beaten Steve Davis in the final. World Match Play was a big event that ITV showed for five years, just before Christmas. Again, they give it loads of coverage. And Nick Owen, more of him later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I've, got, I've got a story about him. <laughs> he was the presenter on ITV. I'm pretty sure that was his first season actually doing it. At that stage, he'd replaced Tony Francis. And he came on at the start of the programme and said that, you know, this is a wonderful match. You're absolutely going to love this. This is a real top-quality match. And indeed, he was right. But instead of going to the match and making the most of it in the limited time they probably had, maybe 50 minutes an hour or whatever, they showed Watana and Gary playing table tennis against each other, (laughs) which they'd obviously filmed, I don't know, probably the day before the match, and chatting away, and this honestly went on for about 10 minutes. And I thought, maybe it's a longer program tonight, because if the match is this good, they wouldn't be wasting this much time. And then Nick Owen comes on and says, well, in the first frame this happened, the second (laughs) frame this happened. They joined the match at 3-all. Only showed two frames, mm. which just seemed like a, a, you know slightly getting their, their priorities wrong. But ITV, you know, they also had John McCririck, mm. who was uh, the betting expert, and he had come in. You actually unearthed, I think about a year ago, an extraordinary piece of footage that you, you posted on, on, on the internet with John McCririck interviewing a 20 year old Stephen Hendry mm. on the old Saint and Greavesy program. I mean, you know, you just don't get stuff like that anymore. There's probably a reason why you don't get stuff like that. Well, not least because Stephen Henry isn't 20. Hmm. But um, they they, they did take a different approach to it. I remember during the World Doubles one year, they had the players going to, um, it was just before Christmas, they had the players going to visit some kids in a local hospital Hmm. in Northampton. Uh, Even the way the picture looked... It always looked, you know, there was kind of a glow off the picture on (laughs) ITV. I'm not not sure it was good to spend too many hours sitting in front of that. But they did do it differently. They were, as you say, I think maverick is a good word for it. But I like the mix and the contrast between BBC and ITV in those days. The first presenter I remember was Dickie Davis, who was sort of
2: ITV's answer to Des Lyon and very suave, very professional. I mean, ideal for it, really. And Mm. then after him, we had Tony Francis, who's... uh, It's interesting, actually, because his son, Barney Francis now runs Sky Sports, and quite openly says he doesn't like snooker, which is why they hardly show any. And then, uh, as you mentioned, Nick Owen as well, who was a terrific presenter, I, I always thought. But it, now he, the, he, this is the story with Nick Owen. When Wattena had his 147 at the British Open, 91? 92. 92, OK. Um, big story, because his father had been shot beforehand, and it was a big human sort of drama. But it wasn't shown live, and the, pr- the programme started with, with Nick Owen saying... Um, Thought so, you know, welcome to the snook. It's been a very special afternoon here, and immediately you think, well, why? It must be in one four seven or something. And of course, they should go into the frame. He's on about forty, and you know it's a maximum, and he's completely basically killed all the drama.
1: And they were so rare in those yeah, days oh yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. on
2: news at ten when the, that maximum yeah. was made. So anyway, you know, I was a bit annoyed about that. I thought you've given this away. Well, years later, I mean, literally about a year ago, I saw because mm. Nick now, Nick Owen, Nick, like I know him. <laughs> Nick now uh, presents. The local news where I live in Birmingham and I saw him in Sainsbury's. He was at the, uh, you know, the self. Bagging area, self checkouts. And I thought, should I go and remonstrate with him after 20 years on? And then I thought, no, you know, you've got, to, you've got to let these things go. And also, he was struggling with the um, un- unidentified object in the bagging area thing that was, that was going oh, on. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, I like to think, I, I gave him a bit of a stare. I like, I like to think I'm, I sort of made my point. But uh, they, that they, they were very professional, you know, for, for all the, the problems with the scheduling, and, 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 and which in the end did actually do them in. That's mm-hmm. why that they, they dropped it. And they showed big tournaments, you know, British Open, you know, yeah. as you 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 mentioned Mercantile Classic, they had the the world doubles, and and in fact, for for a while they had sort of four network tournaments. But I I suppose there was always the feeling with them that. The BBC ones, and it's true still today,
1: were sort of the, the big tournaments. Well, they were there first. Hmm. You know That was the thing, and they had a chance to build themselves up in the public consciousness. Plus as well the fact, I suppose, you look at the format of the BBC events, the World Championship, well, it's the World Championship, but it's always going to be the biggest. The UK in those days, all the matches were at least best of 17. It was generally regarded as the second biggest event, certainly the second biggest ranking event on the calendar. Uh, The Masters as well then was only the top 16 so they did have those advantages I guess. And I think ITV tried to emulate that with the World Match Play. Hmm. That had an elite field uh, of 12 players and actually it was a, a nice little idea they had because the Masters was the top 16 but the way the ranking system worked in those days you could be in the top 16 and be hopelessly out of form you might not want to match all season. The World Match Play was the 12 players who had got the most points the previous season. So it was more reflective of current form. They made all the matches at least best of 17, well, the finals fi- best of 35. Well, as I said, as yeah. you said,
2: this is Barry Hearn, a promoter, the promoter, the final best of 35 for, a, for an invitation event. I mean, there's just no chance of that now, is there, today? No,
1: they got stunned by it, of course, because in the years when it was, there were three years it was best of 35, and they were all pretty much runaways. And I think that's probably why they knocked it back to best of 17. But uh, they at least had a go at it, and... Um, you know, but it, they were always trying to catch up, I think, with the BBC. Uh, actually, the, the last World Match Play final, now, that, they were back to best of 17 by then. And Watanau, he's featuring a lot <laughs> a lot in this piece. But um, in the afternoon session, he was playing Steve Davis, and Watanau was playing as well as anyone at that time. And there was a frame, I remember, where he was, he'd won the frame, but he was trying to clear the table, and I think he may even have been on for a century, and obviously you want to see what's going to happen. And as he's lining up the yellow, they just sort of fade back to the studio. And they made no reference whatsoever to what happened in the rest of the frame. Did he complete the clearance? And they were all sitting there saying, yeah, it looks like he's got a great chance of clearing the table there. And I thought, what? It's it's almost like someone's pressed the wrong button. Well, clearly it was something like that. They also got stung with that because I think they were pretending the whole thing was live, but it clearly wasn't. Mm -hmm. They were on about an hour's delay. And while they were sitting uh, in... They they even took a 15 minutes. Uh, gap between the fourth and fifth frames of the session to try and pretend as though the interval was going on, <laughs> and while, I think it was Tom Moran who was James Wattenberg's yep. manager yeah. in those days while he was talking, <clears throat> thunderous applause came through from the arena yeah. and all this cheering showing that clearly the match was still going on, but those things almost kind of added, added to the whole thing, but uh, yeah, great great days with ITV
2: But the, 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 I'll tell you where they, where they went wrong, this was like the beginning of the end for them, because they, they always were, as we've sort of said quite a fun, they had a, quite a fun way of doing it But I don't know the year, but at some point they changed their title sequence and it was this sort of Mm. moody, you remember, it it may even be black and white, but it was some sort of anonymous snooker player in a club and he's putting his cue in his case and it's all very dramatic and it just seemed out of kilter with the the
1: whole kind of, their whole ethos really. It was like a mini movie with nobody talking in it, an old silent movie. Do you know who I think was in that? You, do you remember Inspector Wexford that used to be on the TV? Well, I said he was niche. I said he was niche. Yeah. I think the guy who played Inspector Wexford was uh, w- w- was in that opening sequence, and then it finishes, doesn't it, with his girlfriend looking on yeah. admiringly because her man has won the See, match. They had a lot of money to
2: spend in those days. You just blow budgets on this stuff. Well, they
1: clearly spent a lot on, on her wardrobe because she was wearing <laughs> earrings that had snooker triangles on there them. You are. Yeah, 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 yeah,
2: yeah.
1: It's 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 extraordinary. And about stuff.
2: three years later, they didn't show any more. the other thing, the other thing I remember was. Um, and this, this actually annoyed me as well was because in the evening highlights they would co- go to the ad break, fair enough they got to show adverts and then they'd come back and they would show a still of a player and it, was always, it would always be the player who would go on to win the match so say they left a match and it was three each say it was Kirk Stevens against Bob Chapron for example if the picture was of Chapron he won so he, again it just killed the drama
1: but they always edited the match as well in a way that would often give it away yeah. you, know, you, you knew if you saw a player win you know the frame to go to to, to take it to four or You knew he was probably going to win the decider. There were little things like that. Now, thankfully, I only picked up on those in later years, so mm. it hadn't ruined things so much. earlier. But it on. wasn't just the viewers
2: that annoyed because Ken Owers who was a professional, yeah. he sort of slogged around a little bit, and he finally got on TV. I think again he played Neil Neil Folds on ITV mm. and you know it's a big deal and, and you know his family his early days of video recorders they're, they're going to record it but unfortunately it was, it, was, it was cut down so much that the only shot you saw of Ken was a cutaway of him taking a drag on a cigarette <laughs> didn't see him play a single shot because it was just cut down to about three minutes and Neil sort of one five one, 5-1 and that, and that was the end of it well, that's ITV, but, mm. of course, the BBC, they showed... I guess the, the moments that we all remember from the, <coughs> the 80s, they were all on the BBC, and they had some real giants working with them. David Vine, Ted Lowe, you know, Jack Carnum Clive Everton, of course, still mm. going strong. David Icke was uh, presenter for a number well, of years. a good presenter, too. Very good one. Yeah. But... Uh, David Vine, I mean, I got to sort of know him a little bit um, when I started working in snooker, the, his nickname was the Governor,
1: and he was, wasn't he? He was a very professional presenter. He did, he was, and do you know why he didn't stand out more in those days? Because that was more than norm in those days, because it was Des Lyon and Steve Ryder, guys like that. I mean, if he was around now, he'd be sort of seen as a kind of a Jeff Stelling sort yeah. of figure, you know, who we all have so much admiration for as a presenter. But, uh, you know, you always felt something had a bit more gravitas, you know, when David Vine said it, when he was presenting it. Again, you know, and this isn't to take anything away from him, a huge advantage he had was that he was there at the start, and he established himself. It's a bit like Ted Lowe as well, I think that's where a lot of his reputation Mm -hmm. came from. He was there, he was the only one doing it in the early days, so, you know, he established the standard. But, you know, again, like I say, David Icke was a good presenter, but there would be some tournaments, like the Masters or whatever, that occasionally he would do on his own, Um, And, you know, you kind of felt it just took a little bit away from it, the fact that David Vine wasn't there. But he was always so much in control of it. He hadn't come from a snooker background, but he got to know the game extremely well and knew it as well as anyone by the end of it. Very good at conducting interviews. Uh, He would ask the question that needed to be asked. And if something needed to be said, which I think is lacking nowadays, he would say it. He wouldn't just necessarily go along with the party line. I remember him uh, interviewing John Spencer one afternoon because... The WPBSA at the time, and Spencer was the chairman, they were trying to pass a vote which would have seen Alison Fisher, who was the women's world champion, brought into the professional game. And uh, John Spencer was on talking about you know, how great this was and what a step forward it would be for the game and for... You know, for women and all the rest of it. And, you know, she tried to qualify for a pro ticket and hadn't managed it. And then David Vine just said to him, "But that's sexist, isn't it?" <laughs> and it was. I mean, you, can you imagine that now? I mean, it would be the total opposite. I think John's response was, "Well, David, we are sexist." <laughs> so. Well, the
2: good news is, this this was before Twitter, so there was no, oh, there was, no, my, there was no. Can you imagine? There was no backlash. I, I mean, I, when I got to know David Vine, what was apparent was he he did do a lot of preparation. Uh, he would always check just before going on air. Who are the commentators? he already knew, but he wanted it double checked who 's the referee? you know what 's the exact point of coming in, and he would do this extraordinary thing as well, where he would spend a good ten minutes clearing his throat. I mean it was an extraordinary thing to witness, but but that was all part of the preparation. He came from that background where you had to be professional you hadn 't just wandered in off the street you know you were expected to, to, to do a professional job, and uh, I, I think Ted Lowe as well you know he, he, his style now would not work because. Sports TV has moved on. But actually, I always found him sort of inobtrusive, quite nice to listen to. He had a nice voice and nice manner about him. Mm,
1: Yeah, John Pullman as well, actually, as well, was another one who I I just thought he had a really good voice, kind of very reassuring or whatever. But you know the the huge difference between commentators then and now is that you know there were huge periods of time when they didn't speak. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's funny we were talking about this because just the other day, I don't even know how I came across it, but I found a clip of Stephen Hendry when he would have been about 18, playing Joe Johnson in the World Championship in 87 in the quarterfinal. And he's going for just unbelievable shots <laughs> and getting all of them, you know. And uh, won the frame in about three minutes or whatever. And you don't hear anyone until, you know, he's pretty much won the frame. And the thing is, you know, snooker, you know, great game that it is. And, you know, we always say there are no two frames the same. A lot of it is actually quite repetitive. Yeah. You know, it's very skillful, obviously. But, you know, pot of red, pot of black, whatever, you know. Unless there's anything particularly out of the ordinary going on, everyone understands what's happening. And I think commentators were allowed to let it breathe in those days. I think nowadays there's probably too much of an expectation to just keep talking, talking, talking for the sake of it. But that was a a massive difference. And, you know, Jimmy White making a century at the Crucible. It was on that compilation uh, video that the BBC uh, put out. And Clive was doing the commentary on that. I don't think he said a single word until he just said, right at the end of it, genius at work or something like that. (laughs) Well, I think one of the reasons, though, was
2: because because there was no red button. There was no streaming or anything so a lot of the commentary they would do they would know would never be broadcast I mean they had to commentate every ball just in case there was a 147 or something but you could guarantee you sit down with some early matches say you're doing the first session of the Crucible and it's two players who you know are not that interested you pretty much know none of it is going to go out or maybe one frame so in a way there's no kind of need to commentate
1: yeah, yeah, maybe. I'm sure that was a factor in it as well. And, you know, the other thing, just talking, I remember how you'd see the presenter at the start. You might not see him again until the end yeah. of the programme. just, you know, wiped from one frame to the next. And they were so quickly into it as well. I mean, even if it was a big final or whatever, they might talk for a minute or two. It would be sort of, again, David Fine going... Here's how these players got to the final. This is this guy's ranking. Off we go. Mm. And so there's a lot yeah. to be said for that. There's a lot to be said for <laughs> it. And they were the days when everybody was watching. Yeah, you know, he did one that the snooker break, which it was,
2: yeah. uh, which is was something you look forward to because, it, it, like you said, there weren't actually m- many features during the coverage. But when there wasn't play on the morning in the World Championship, the two Thursdays, and and some other times as well, there would there would be. Uh, so half-hour programs so called Snooker Break, and it would just be a magazine program full, mm. of, full of sort of snooker features. And on one of them, they do they pull the shot of the championship uh, results out, which of course back then, because you had to <laughs> vote by via postcard, it was actually shot of the first week of the championship. Mm. And David, it's David Vine and Rex Williams. And first of all, David Vine, <laughs> David Vine, bigs up Rex. He says, "Oh, you're on breakfast television this morning, Rex. Uh, how did that go?" And Rex starts to to talk about it, and, and he said, did, did you see it, David? And, and he just said, no, I was asleep. So it completely <laughs> cut him down. But that, that's by the by. Um, they then pull out the winner of shot, shot of the Championship, and they read out her entire address, literally the street, the, the house number, the street, the postcode. I mean, you, just, you can imagine that now. It'll probably be like some sort of Facebook-related house party coming up. <laughs> you, can tell yeah. you can tell we're getting old, can't you? Yeah. It is true. I
1: mean, it was Shot of the first yeah. two rounds. And then it was funny. The funny thing was, I mean, the reason, obviously, is because people had to write in. It was only when... internet and texting all came about that they dropped it it. (laughs) (laughs) except for one year when they brought it back and you know what they did I was disgusted with this it was about 2002 they joint shot at the championship what was the point in that Yeah, 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 yeah 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 Let's talk about
2: some of the... We've mentioned Vine and, and, and David Ike, but there were some other sort of people who, who drifted in and out. I mean, I was surprised to, to actually stumble across this. Des Lynham presented the Masters one year. That's right. But uh, there
1: were all sorts of people. Eamon Holmes. Eamon Holmes. He was sort of the number two for a few years because the number two role seemed to be you'd present the Masters, because I think David Vine was off doing Ski Sunday yeah. or whatever, and you'd do the sort of less prominent mm. bits of the World Championship. So Tony Gubbard did that Yeah. Uh, briefly. don't know if he ever did the World Championship. He definitely did the Masters... Um, that was only for a brief period. Um, Eamon Holmes, as well as you say, for a few years. Doogie Donnelly, who was who, who actually stepped up to the main role yeah. for a year when David Vine retired. Um, there was Matt Smith, who's on ITV. Jane Hoffman, didn't she? Yeah, do a bit. Or maybe she wasn't presenting, but she was certainly involved in in, in the whole thing. Um, the, the the thing was, I think if you were really into your snooker, you could tell quite quickly hmm. who knew the game and who didn't. And uh, but thankfully, I think you know those, those who didn't perhaps come from a snooker background, generally, you know, they managed to acquit themselves mm-hmm. reasonably well. I'm not sure that's quite so true, you know, of all sports coverage now, but certainly back then, I think, a, a, you know, there was a minimum level of knowledge that if you didn't have, you were expected to at least acquire. But uh, as I say, it was... It was hard for anyone to compete with with David Vine. But I mean, you mentioned Dickie Davies there. I mean, you know, he he was, I and mean, you described him as sort of the Deslinem type. He even looked a bit like him. Yeah. He had the moustache and everything as well. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't imagine Dickie came from a particularly snooker orientated mm. background. But uh, but he mastered the brief. That's the point i was making did. about Vine. Exactly. You know, they, they, would saying, the yeah. they would do the work. They would do the work. Yeah. And you know, he did he did come across knowledgeable. And you know, over the years, I think he became as much a snooker man as anyone. And it's funny. He always seemed to get embroiled. Not so much personally, but he seemed to be. There, whenever scandals broke, and I remember him doing an interview with Kirk Stevens when there was the whole drug story and all the rest of it, uh, he always seemed to find himself dealing with situations like that, but he had a wonderful voice, he was a wonderful broadcaster, and, you know, he would always set the tone, you'd sit down and watch a couple of hours on snooker on ITV, and... Even if you weren't all that enthused about the match. He was really, really good, as was David Vine, at getting you enthused about it within those first couple of moments. And then he just suddenly disappeared. I think, you know, when you're that age, you imagine that everything will stay the same yeah, forever. Yeah. And then just at the start of one season, he was gone and Tony Francis was there, and he did a couple of years. And uh, and then, as I say, Nick Owen and, uh, and the whole an incident. But uh, no, but generally, as you say, Nick Owen was... Uh, you know, did do a very good job of it as well. Dennis Taylor presented actually. Yeah, he presented that was a, weird. Few de- he did a few shows
2: in a afternoon But, shows. but he also, Dennis was commentating. Yeah. long before he was world champion. I mean, he commentated. He was the lead commentator. I mentioned that Francisco Stevens British Open. That was just before he won the yeah. world, and he
1: was doing lead commentary. Very smart, really, to get into it while he was still a top player. Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. And. Um, I mean, you don't really see that now, do you? Yeah. I mean, at all. I mean, they're all sort of retired players. I know, well, Ken darty you know, he's been doing the commentary for a few years and he was still quite prominent when he started doing it. But uh, other than that, they're generally all ex-players. But Dennis did it then. They all seem to jump channels as well. Yeah. Because he then went to the BBC. Ray Edmonds definitely worked for both. John Virgo would pop up everywhere. Willie Thorne, I mean, I think at one point he was doing BBC, ITV and Sky. Mm-hmm. So he was certainly making them out, And probably a bit on screen sport, as, as I think Eurosport was known in those days. Um... So, uh, yeah, all sorts of different names have, have, have been part of it all. And, you know, back, back then, most of the players... There seemed to be a certain type of individual in those days. A veteran player who also played billiards in commentary <laughs> and was on the board of the WPBSA. Yeah. There was a real set of them, like Rex Williams, Ray Edmonds. Uh, I'm not sure Jim Meadowcroft ever played billiards, but I think he fitted all the other criteria. So that, well, that David was, that David, the Ta-
2: David Taylor it wasn't a billiards player, but, of course, yeah.
1: he... he sort of filled in for someone
2: uh, at, the, at the 82 Lila Classic with John Pullman. And of course it just happened to be the frame uh, where Steve made the first 147 on TV and, and it's fair to say he, he got so excited, which you can understand, but there's Pullman who is the ultimate in sort of restraint, you know, every, every words very economical and, you know, he was never going to start shouting and screaming. David Taylor did
1: shout and scream. Oh, he did, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And do you know what, J- just thinking of, of players... I bet you, you I'd be very surprised if you remember this. Dino Kane, the New Zealand player, he did a bit of comedy yeah, on the BBC. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, it was around the time they were they were really starting to experiment with things. But I, I remember th- th- where things started to change a bit. You know, I'm not necessarily saying for the worse, for the better, whatever. But they just started to change around about the mid 90s. And I remember um, BBC at the time really got into like building personalities around players. And there was a guy called Nick Pierce. I'm sure you remember him. He mm. got to the semi-finals at the <laughs> International Open. And he'd won his first match at a tournament, I think it was the Grand Prix. And then he was playing Alain Robidoux uh, in the next round of the tournament. And the BBC decided, well, you know, Nick Pierce, you know, he's kind of got the long hair. He did a bit of modelling in his spare time. They really wanted to build up his profile. And David Vine, who clearly didn't look happy about it, was told <laughs> to build up, oh, no doubt about the big match tonight, it's Alain Robidoux against Nick Pierce. Now, this was in the afternoon session when they were previewing it. Now, I think it was clearly wasn't the biggest match. I think the match on the other table was something like Stephen Hendry against you know the exhumed corpse of Joe Davis or something. <laughs> but he was told to build this up. Of course, inevitably, it turns into a 5-0 for Robert, who It barely featured on the highlights programme that night. So there was much more of an emphasis towards building stories around things after that. I think in the sort of classic days, the golden age, whenever that was, the 80s, the 90s, it was all about the snooker and just a little bit of talking around it. Let the action speak for itself. And I think I th- that's changed a lot. I think... The reason for that,
2: actually, was that what happened was the BBC, they had to start taking in independent production. There was a sort of law passed towards the end of the 80s that a quarter of... And it still applies now. A yeah. quarter of their programming had to be supplied by independents. So farming out the snooker made sense because there were so many hours of it. But, of course, new people come in and, and they have their own ideas. But I think it's worth stressing as well, this was pre-internet. There was pre-Red Button. There was no Red Button. When they went off air, they were off air. Yeah. You, couldn't, you couldn't watch it anywhere else. So basically... They, they gave it to you when they wanted to. If they wanted to go off at 4-all, they went off at 4-all. And, and it wasn't sort of bed of roses. I mean, there was, it was very fractured. But I suppose if you knew nothing different, you, you kind yeah. of just didn't mind. You just tuned in when it was on.
1: I think you almost kind of got, got accustomed to it. You, mm-hmm. you know, you, you would have felt a bit uncomfortable if it changed. <laughs> remember Neil Folds and John Parrott in the Masters in 88. And Neil was having a wretched season. He'd been number three in the world. and was, you know, was really struggling to win matches at the time. He was 4-1 up. And this was going to turn his season around if he won this. John Parrott had just uh, reached the final of the Mercantile a couple of weeks earlier. Parrott comes back to 4-all. It's the last frame. They're on the colours. (laughs) And then David Ike comes on and says, well, you know, join us again at midnight. (laughs) You know, or or whatever it was. So they they certainly did it in those days. They still go off now sometimes, but... uh, at the same time as you say you've got Red Button and all, all that sort of things you, you do you do have the options so yeah I mean it is true you know we, we talk about the profile that Snooker had Prime time on BBC One After News at 10 on ITV but it, it's not quite as you put it a bed of roses the way people imagine I mean mm. you know the afternoon sessions now at big tournaments they're on for maybe five hours it, it wasn't always like that in those days and you know they might just have a couple of hours here a couple of hours there um, so you know perhaps uh, you know the, the game even though it was much higher profile it wasn't You know, quite the utopia that people perhaps like to imagine.
2: We didn't have the internet, but we did have CFAX. Yeah. Although,
1: having said that, I didn't, we didn't
2: have CFAX in our house, but my, my nan had it. We used to go to most weekends, and, and it, it, to me, it was a thing of wonder because if you were looking for maybe the pre TV rounds of a snooker tournament, if you're looking for the scores, you know, there they were on a screen, and, and, and you could refresh the page and see if they changed. You know, you look at it now, if you just say to some kid now, oh, this is what CFAX is, they, they'd laugh
1: in your face. they got everything on their phones and so on, but it, it was kind of magical. Oh, it was, and you get little snippets of snooker news as well. I mean you know back then now it's 12 years uh, 12 months uh, round. but back then the world championship would finish on the first monday in may you wouldn't see any snooker for maybe four months and you know the only contact you'd have with the game okay you'd read the magazines or whatever but you know on a day-to-day basis you might get a little snippet you know about a player you know signing a signing up with Matchroom or framework or Cue masters or one of those management stables or you know a new sponsor being announced or even a new tournament being announced and You know, it just seemed like gold dust because it was the only contact you had with Snooker for months. And yeah, I mean, you know, you you could end up following matches entirely on CFAX uh, back in those days. You know, OK, you might want to wait for the result if it was a tournament on TV. But as time went on and overseas ranking events and that came in, it was the only way you could follow it. You know, I mean, they weren't all being shown. Some of them were shown maybe on satellite television over here, but they weren't all at that time. So uh, very much, you know, a lot of the time that was the only way you could follow Follow those tournaments.
2: It, it was a more innocent age because I found out later when I started working on the snooker circuit that the way CFAX got their scores very simply was someone would ring from the venue. Yeah. It would be one of the freelancers. John D, used to, used to do it, he worked for the Telegraph and various others, and he used to do it. I remember when I eventually started working in the snooker world, there was a match at the Masters that was going on and on, and John wanted to go. So he said, Do you mind ringing CFAX? But he said, he said After 11 o'clock at night, they'd use a different number. So he gave, he gave me the number. Of course, when I rang it, it was just some bloke at home in Middlesex. It was the wrong number. So I've rung up, you know, Yes, just got a snooker score. Fergal O'Brien has gone 5-4 uh, up against Dave Harold. I won't tell you what the bloke said to me, but uh, you can imagine he wasn't, he wasn't too impressed. He wasn't, well, that, that was really a direct service, wasn't <laughs> it? You know, a journalist actually yeah. brings you from the press room yeah. to give you the scores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, sort of looking back at the era, I mean, you know, it, it, it's very easy to, to romanticise, which mm. we, we've been doing for about half an hour now, but uh, they were great times for the sport, weren't they? But I guess hard to maintain, that level of, Interest. It was all the bubble was always going to kind of burst. Not not completely. I mean, the, the interest, as you said, during the nineties and now is still yeah. really big. But
1: you could never sustain that amount of viewers. You know, sixteen million yeah. for a final. Well, nothing kind of, can. No. Nothing can. I mean, you even look at the, um, the, you know, the viewing figures now. I think it's one of the Sunday newspapers publishes the top ten on each channel. You even look at things like Coronation Street yeah. and EastEnders. I mean, they. You know, as recently as ten, fifteen years ago, used to get audiences like sixteen, seventeen million. They're now maybe getting five or six million an episode. So the world has changed, and you know, people do get bored with things. And snooker was so new. I mean, yeah. that that was the thing. You know, back then, sports on television it was things like football, cricket, rugby. Even rugby wasn't on so much in those days. But you know, late seventies into the eighties suddenly there was a bit of a you know a new era with new sports being shown on television and it wasn't just snooker that benefited from it Hmm. although that was the biggest one but darts became big on television remember figure skating gymnastics these became really big things on television bowls as well indoor bowls which you don't see much of now so i think there was an appetite at the time and particularly i think because football in this part of the world is you know so dominant with everything and people were starting to become fed up with the behavior of players the rioting at matches that used to happen in those days you know, people liked to see something different and snooker was such a contrast to that and, you know, you could set it up so well for television you know, you could lay out the set whatever way you wanted, the colours looked very appealing as I say, ITV had that mysterious glow off the picture <laughs> as well you know, I think that might have just been your TV that it, may, it yeah. may well have been, maybe I've had a different TV yeah. but, uh, you know, it was so visually appealing as well and... Um, I just think, you know, I spoke as well about how commentators didn't talk as much. People liked these things, but people were different then. Uh, but also, it, d- it doesn't take
2: long for something to become established, and then for people to start saying it's not as good as it used to be. You see, yeah. you see it now with like, a TV drama, everyone raves about the first series, and then the second series. Well, it's not as good as the first series, you know. And, and I think the sort of that was uh, true in snooker that that, that eighty-five final objectively, the match actually wasn't that great. The standard wasn't that high. The last frame was terrible. Yeah. But the end, of course, everyone remembers yeah. quite rightly as the most dramatic moment in the history of the sport. And once you've had something like that, it's very hard to then sort of go up another level. You know, you're always looking back at it and look, look at all the sort of anniversary talk about this year, understandably, but it's, it's like we've kind, of, we've kind of never sort of learned to move on from it in a way. Here's a
1: question. Would it have been better for Snooker if the 85 final had never happened? Well, you'd hope there would have been a final that year, otherwise. Right, that you know
2: what I mean? If it hadn't <laughs> yeah. been the big comeback and the last black. I don't about know that about thing. that. I don't know about that. It did put it did put Snook on the map, and it, and it was a talking point. But it, in a way, it, it partly the, I think the sport's fault that we've allowed it to become this sort of big, sort of you know this big deal because there's been so many other matches that have been memorable, high <laughs> quality, and they've sort of kind of been swamped. But it, 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 it was sort of it was the absolute pinnacle of that. that period we're talking about the, the, the 1980s snooker boom in a way it was almost inevitable that something like that was going to happen because snooker yeah. was already big that wasn't that didn't make snooker snooker was already big on tv well th- this
1: is this is the point i'm not saying i think snooker would have been better off without that drama happening but given how high profile it was and the massive figures it was getting i mean you spoke about the francisco stevens final just a few weeks earlier might it actually have been better for snooker in some respects if people hadn't constantly had that unbelievable high watermark to point to it's up there, you know, certainly in Britain as one of, you know, in the nation's consciousnesses, you know, one of the all-time great sporting events, along with things like the 1966 World Cup final and all that. And I wonder if there hadn't been such a high watermark at that time, would snooker, you know, it's the whole tall poppy syndrome. If the poppy hadn't become quite as tall as it did that day, would snooker have maybe had a fairer ride from people in years to come? But you know what? and y- the fact and it's something that Clive Everton has said a number of times the fact that Snooker has survived as long as it has and is robust as it is and you know with more and more tournaments all the time even on British television with ITV4 getting more and more interested you know it says a lot about the game that it's managed to um, survive all that and remain as strong as it has and you know, no matter what anyone says, it's still one of the most popular television sports in Britain and it's far, far bigger than it ever was in those days around the world. Well, there's more ways of watching it now. You know, the digital television has
2: come in. Uh, ITV4 have come back to do superb coverage. Obviously, Eurosport show, all the tournaments, the BBC sh- still show, the big three. OK, Sky have sort of dwindled away, but people listening to this overseas get a chance to watch it mm-hmm. on, on the internet as well. So things have certainly changed. I was going to ask you, though, as we sort of wrap this up, bear in mind the sort of... You're a big, you were a big snooker fan, I was a big snooker fan. When you actually started working in the snooker world, what was that like to suddenly, you know, oh, there's so-and-so, I watched him, you know, 11 o'clock at night on ITV? Oh, well, it's, it's unbelievable, isn't it? It's
1: funny because, do you know, before I was working in snooker, I only ever actually went to one match. It was Jimmy White against Alan McMance in the 93 Irish Masters. It was quite near where I lived, but it was the only time I ever went. The first match I was ever at in a working capacity Was the Irish Masters Jimmy White against Alan McManus? Only four years later, but you you know yourself, it's it's extraordinary. It's just you you kind of imagine when you're watching it on TV. The backstage, everything's really intense and dramatic. It's 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 so (laughs) the opposite. It's so relaxed, and you know these guys who you've watched on TV for all these years, they're just sitting there chatting away Mm. about the football or where they've gone on their holidays it's totally totally different and far more casual than you ever would imagine but the players are great to deal with I mean I've worked in a number of different sports football, golf, rugby down the years I mean the snooker players are by far the best to deal with they're the most approachable and I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that you know, the money hasn't got out of hand. Some of these guys have earned a fantastic living out of it. But the money hasn't got completely out of hand. And also, I suppose, the fact that if there's one game that will bring you back down to earth, it is snooker, you know, when you missed your black off the spot or whatever. Um, but it's, uh, it's... And you watch it in a whole different light now, as you know yourself, when you watch it on television. You see the whole thing in a different light. And, you know, you get to know a bit more about the players' personalities. And more than anything you really understand what it means to these people it's their whole life it's their livelihood yeah. it's everything they work for and I think it's only by coming to a tournament being around the players and that that you really can then watch it with a full and proper understanding of just exactly how much it means to all these guys
2: the glamour for me rubbed off very quickly I was at the Guildhall Preston probably must have been the UK Championship one of the first tournaments I worked on and Stephen Hendry came in the press room and, and launched into this anecdote about he'd gone up been to HMV to buy the box set of Friends or something, and and he'd had some trouble with the cashier, and I just thought, this is so mundane, you know, this is one of our country's great sportsmen, but also brilliant, because I'm sure a lot of sports, you just wouldn't get that, A, they wouldn't come in the press room and just chat, Mm. because they'd be worried that it would all be reported, and and B, just sort of down to earth and and stuff you could relate to, and like you said, you know, the players are very accessible, they're normal people, and I think there is, a deep down, it might even be sort of subconscious thing, they, they kind of recognised, snooker got lucky, you know, there was never any plan for snooker to suddenly mm. become a big TV sport. It lucked its way and it proved its worth because of the, the quality of the drama and the entertainment that it, that it provides. But I think, you know, there's a lot of lives could have been very different if it wasn't for the fact that TV embraced
1: snooker. Very much so. I mean, you know, these guys, John Higgins, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Mark Williams, they're all pretty much exactly the same age as us. They probably started watching snooker around the same time difference was they when they started to play they were actually an awful (laughs) lot better than you or i have ever pretty big
2: difference in yeah
1: and that is that generation and it's funny now that you know that generation although some of them are still very high profile most of the guys who came through from that era have now passed on and Mm -hmm. now there's a whole different era of guys who you know probably couldn't even imagine a the concept of there not being you know so much snooker on television but also would have no grasp at all of just how massive the game became at a time you know, when we were coming into it. I just wish I'd discovered it maybe a few years earlier and maybe just been around for a few more years of it being at its absolute high profile. But to me, as I said earlier, that is, is the ultimate thing. It's not even the amount of coverage. It's not even the profile that was given in the coverage. It's the fact that snooker in the mainstream was so big, question of sport, chat shows, all these things. The players were huge, huge stars. And even Ronnie O'Sullivan, by far the most famous snooker player you know, among the general public now, uh, his profile would still be nowhere near Uh, The level of, you know, maybe even an average top eight, top ten player back when we started thirty years ago.
2: Okay, well, thank you for your memories. I'm not sure exactly where all that got us, but I enjoyed looking back. And uh, thank you for listening. Cheers.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 18 plus.